Well, welcome, faithful. Um, well, so I think most of you have been here uh, last Sunday. It's okay. It's okay. It's not bothering me. Uh, well, last week we finished up James chapter 2. We finished up James chapter 2, um, in which we've been seeing James's teachings on the necessity of having a genuine faith. James has been speaking of having a real faith that actually produces works. And so I think um, throughout this whole epistle so far, what we've been seeing is James's desire for these churches that he's writing to, these scattered churches, he's writing to them about the necessity of having a true religion, is the words he used previously. He wants them to have a true religion. He wants them to have deeds that are actually consistent with the faith that is in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So he, he's, he's been speaking of that in a very general sense. And he's, and he's been giving plenty of examples along the way. But now in chapter 3, what James is going to do is he's not going to leave the topic of having um, genuine Christian works, but he's going to hone in on one specific Christian work. He's going to hone in on the work of the words of the work of your speech. He's going to talk for 12 verses now about controlling one's speech. And so he's really going to, he's really going to dive in here. It gets very extensive um, in that he's going to give us many examples. He's going to give us many illustrations to prove the point that controlling the tongue is a genuine Christian work. And so because he is going to give many examples and many illustrations that hopefully we'll get to see them all today, this is my prayer and this is my hope for this class, is that at least one of these illustrations or one of these examples will, will hit home. At least one of these examples you'll be able to grab onto, hide in your heart, and, and, and remember the seriousness of the tongue. That you'll be able to relate to at least to one of these and that you will leave here having a... God-fearing understanding of the seriousness of our tongues and what it and what it can do, and so that's my hope. So let, let's get started. Let's look at James chapter three and verse one. James chapter three and verse one. James says, "Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment." And so, right from the beginning. We're going to note that James is going to start off this, this it's, it's really a famous section. Many people know this section of James on the tongue and the sins of the tongue. Many are familiar with it. And it's just very interesting to note that, look how he starts off this section with a warning to teachers, or, or more specifically, it's a warning to those who want to become teachers. And so what better way to start off a, uh, a discussion and an exhortation on the tongue than to start off with those who will do most of the talking. And so I think that, of course, you know, it's, it's scripture, it's, it's, the, it's, the wise, it's the wise thing to do. And James has gone this way to start off with a warning to those who are going to be using their mouth more often than anyone else. Um, let, me read, let me read a proverb because this is, this is no new thing in the scriptures. Let me just read this proverb. Proverbs 10.19 says this. It says, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. And so I don't think Solomon was speaking to teachers 
specifically in that in that proverb there, but the, the truth is, is still remains. Whoever is speaking a lot is, is opening up the door for, for error and for sin and for misspeaking. Right? So I think this is why James would would speak directly to those seeking to become teachers first. Um, James is going to go on to say how our speaking, how our voice, how our speech and our tongue can affect other people. He's going to say how it can bring great destruction, how it can cause much harm to other people. But first he starts off with how it affects this, this would-be teacher himself first. He's going to bring it home to the person first. How will the tongue affect this person who wants to become a teacher? Well, he says that it, this, this, this man uh, seeking to be a teacher, he says that he will incur a stricter judgment. A stricter judgment. And this, this is, of course, as you know, one of the many issues that, that commentators will go back and forth on as far as how does this work? How does someone incur a stricter judgment? And, and, what, and what does that mean? Is that the judgment of whether or not someone's going to be saved or not? Is it the judgment that um, will be just for Christians? And I, and I think that the text tells us, because look who it says that James is speaking to. He says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. So I think he's directing, he's directing this to Christians who would want to become teachers, who may have the desire, and he's calling them brethren, which is always a reference of, 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 of brothers in Christ. And so I think that it's pretty clear that this would be a judgment, not regarding whether these men are going to become uh, or, or be saved or not, but I think he's speaking to the same type of judgment that's good, that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And if any of you are familiar with that judgment, Paul's basically describing this judgment that will occur when we stand before Christ, and depending on what our ministry or what our works were based on, we'll either receive rewards or our, or our works will be burnt up. Right? I think that's the judgment that he's speaking of. Um, and in the same way, Paul says, like, if, if our works are not based on Christ, if they're not built on the, on the, on the rock, if they're, if they're not done for the glory of God, then our works will be burnt up and they'll be wasted. And, and we will not receive a reward. But if our, if our works are done, if our ministry is done for the glory of God, we'll be rewarded. We'll be rewarded. So that's the type of judgment that James is speaking of here. And he's, and he's warning these Christians... Um, of, of the reality of standing before Christ. The reality that one day we will stand before Christ and we will give an account for everything that we said. This is what should cause these believers to think twice about becoming a teacher. He's, he's telling them to think twice about this. He's showing them the seriousness of standing before Christ and having everything that you say is going to be judged. Everything's going to be judged by Christ. And I think... Um, of course, this is a wise thing to say because especially with the view that even when we read through the New Testament, you see the view that the Jews naturally had for the rabbis. The rabbis were held in great esteem. They had great prominence. Um, people, people honored them. And so it would be very natural, I think just as we are now, teachers and, and pastors and elders and, and anybody in authority would always naturally give them more honor, more prominence, more esteem. And so, this is what James is doing. James is saying, you need to check your, your fleshly desires, your um, worldly passions. You need to check them against what Christ's opinion is going to be of you on that day. Right? Because 
Christ's opinion is going to have eternal consequences. What, what we do in this life and with our mouth and what we teach specifically will have eternal consequences. Gaining prominence and gaining people's um, honor now is, is, is going to pass just like our lives will, like a vapor. And so I think this is what James is saying. He's telling these would-be teachers to think twice because you're going to be asked to speak a lot and with much speech comes the, the opportunity of, of, to stumble in your speech and to sin, right? So, so now James is going to go on to answer the question of why. Why would one of these, almost again, why would one of these, these people desiring to be teachers, why would they be so worried about this, this stricter judgment? You know, many of them are probably hastily, you know, oh, this Christian church is starting. Like, we, need, we need teachers. Let me, let, me, let me be one of those. That sounds great, you know, kind of making a hasty decision. But look at verse 2. This is what James says. James says, The reason is, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And so, as we saw, James begins with a very specific warning to to would-be teachers. But he's quickly expanding this out to grab everyone. He's grabbing everyone, including all of us. Because the reality of the situation is that we all stumble in many ways. And James right here is including himself. You see that he says, we. He says, we all stumble in many ways. James is including himself in this, in this reality of the potential of sin and the actuality of sin. Um, because James knows, James knows that it's not easy to sanctify yourself. It's not easy to sanctify yourself in general and therefore to be... Um, to have the opportunity to teach in the church. But he's speaking here, James is honing in on the ultimate difficulty. The ultimate difficulty in sanctification in, in buffeting one's body is to control one's speech. That's it right there. And so James is saying that if you can control this part of your body, the rest of your body will, will follow right along. It'll be easy. right? So I have a, I have a, a, a quote from, from a Puritan, Thomas Manton, who he puts it like this. He says, he that can do that, speaking of controlling the tongue, he says he can do anything in Christianity. He can do anything in Christianity if you can control the tongue. So now when the text says, the text says here, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And so we, we pointed out, James has used this word before, being perfect. He used it in James chapter 1, um, verse 4. And there we talked about, and I'll just mention it again, that James is not speaking of uh, um, a sinless perfectionism. He's not saying if you can bridle your tongue, you will never sin again. I think he's, he's using the word perfect, just like we looked at last time, for those that remember. He's using it that you will be a mature Christian. You will be complete in the sense that you will have your body under control. So he's not, he's not of course, speaking of sinless perfectionism. Because like I said, he just said right there, we all stumble in many ways, James, including himself. Right, so now, let's look. James, what James is going to do now is James is going to paint some pictures for us of how this very small part of the body, the tongue, actually leads the entire rest of the body. In verses 3 and following, I'll read them. It says, Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and driven by strong winds... They're still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. 
so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And so James just gave us three illustrations of this truth. The first one, he speaks of a, a little bit, a little bit that goes into the mouth of this, this four-legged ton of muscle that we call a horse, right? A very small bit controls this horse. I mean, a child, a child can get on the back of a horse and control it because of this little bit that's in his mouth. That's the first illustration. The second one he gave was a, the, the small rudder. The small rudder that's at the stern at the very back of a great big ship, it controls, the, it controls it wherever the captain, wherever the pilot wants. A very small rudder. right? So, so when I first read this, I guess in my mind, um, hopefully you guys can relate, but I always thought, you know, when I think of ships, he's, he's trying to use ships as a description, I always thought of the little boats, you know, where like five of the disciples are in there, and the, it's almost trying to sink because so many fish. You know, there's like five guys crunched up in there. Um, with a net maybe uh, but actually we as a family in our devotions we actually just finished Acts, the whole book of Acts and this is what I read in Acts 27 and it, and it's, and it, it was helpful to me in Acts 27 it's, it's Paul describing the shipwreck that happens to them their, their, their ship is wrecked it's destroyed, you know he's being taken to Rome um, to speak before Caesar and he mentions in that that there was 276 people aboard their ship and for me, that was very helpful to, I didn't, that's not how I imagined, you know, first century, but they had ships. And so this would be a very fitting illustration. These great big ships are controlled by a very small rudder, right? So, so these, dem, these demonstrate, these illustrations demonstrate the great control that this comparatively small organ of our body can have over our entire bodies. And so the question is for us, how do we relate to this? Does, it, does that ring true to us? Because James doesn't say in verse 5 that the, that the tongue leads us into to wise counsel. It doesn't say that our tongues lead us into edification of others. On the very contrary, he says that our tongues boast of great things. And I think, I think that's with an obvious negative connotation. Because he's not saying really anything good here about the tongue. So I think when he says that our tongues boast of great things, it's, it's, it's in a negative sense. Because he follows it up here in the, in, in the text. He says again, See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And so in these illustrations, our tongue is this really small fire. And he says, See how great a forest is set aflame. And just like these illustrations would be re very relevant to these people, I think this, this force that is set aflame would, would be a dreadful thought to somebody in the first century. Because they didn't have helicopters and planes and organized fire, um, uh, firefighters, and they couldn't drop, you know, perimeters of fire suppressant like we can. These fires that got started by a little fire would, would probably burn until there was nothing left. Utter destruction. And so that's, that's, the, that's the picture that James is trying to paint for us of these little tongues that we have in our mouths. And so let's look at verses 6 and following to see even more of a description of this fire, this fire we call our mouths. Verse 6 says, And the tongue is a fire. It's the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. And it sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. 
So James calls the tongue the very world of iniquity. And so I think in other words, James is saying that the tongue is the place, the mouth is the place that sin runs rampant. That sin, there's, there's no bounds. It, sin completely abounds in our mouths. Right? He states that the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the whole body. This small thing defiles the whole body. It's like there's leaven, a small piece of part of leaven in our mouths that goes on to defile our entire bodies. Um, and what he says here, to me it sounds like he, he's nearly quoting his older brother. Who was Jesus' older brother? Um, Jesus. Oh, I mean, who, yeah, did I say Jesus? Yeah. Who's James' older brother? I gave it away, I'm sorry. But yeah, I think that, that James is quoting Jesus, his older brother, um, or at least the truth that, that Jesus spoke of in Mark 7. I'll read it to you. This is when the Pharisees were coming to Jesus and they were asking, well, how do your disciples eat with unclean hands? But the truth that Jesus responds with is, is very relevant. He says, um, he says, do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but it goes into his stomach and then is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out from a man this is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things proceed from within and defile the man. Right? And so I think, I think it's relevant because I think most of these sins come out of us through the conduit of our mouths, through the conduit of the tongue. And so it, it's very appropriate for James to say that our tongue sets on fire the course of our life. Because in the same way, Jesus gave just a wide-ranging list of sins that proceed out of man. Right, This little part of our body burns and destroys the entire course of our lives. Right, I, I, you can see how our tongues, our mouths, what we say can limit our future. It can limit what we want our lives to be now and where we want to be in our sanctification and our walk with God. It can limit our, our future walk with God. The tongue. The tongue will set on fire the course of our life. And so if we could only tame the tongue. And what is it what is the catalyst behind? What kindles the great fire that is our tongues? What does he say that it's set on fire by? He says it's set on fire by hell. He says it's set on fire by hell. The word here is Gehenna, which is referring to the, the pit just south of Jerusalem where pagans used to sacrifice their children to Moloch. That's what used to happen here. Now the Jews used it as like a, a place to burn their trash um, it was just like an ongoing fire that you could take your trash out to and your garbage to burn it. And this is the place that Jesus would use to illustrate um, eternal punishment. Jesus used this place, Gehenna, when, when we translate the word hell, he's speaking of this place as the reference so that people could get the understanding of just this eternal burning, this eternal destruction. And Jesus used this word just, just to give you an illustration, an example in Matthew ten twenty eight. Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but are, but are unable to kill the soul, 
but rather fear him who is able to destroy both, both soul and body in hell. And so this is what Jesus, this is what would have come to the mind, uh, was just this place of just constant, constant burning. Um, so, so why does Jesus use the, why does Jesus say our mouths are being set on fire by hell? Um, I think he's just emphasizing just the, 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 the total depravity of our mouths. Just the place where just this constant burning, this constant churning up of fire is happening. Just like hell is always eternally burning, so our mouths are just constantly causing us to sin, constantly causing us to fall. And that's what would have come, come to mind. That's what James is trying to illustrate. Um, as I, I mean, as I originally said, James is giving us a very extensive treatment because, because he goes on in verse 7. He says this, he says, For every species of beasts and birds, reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And so James is going to show us what type of animal that the tongue is. Because we have lions in our circuses doing tricks. We have, we have eagles you know, that will come to rest on the arm of their trainer. Little kids have huge pet lizards in their houses. And SeaWorld has killer whales that will splash the audience, right? And everybody laughs. But the human tongue, what kind of animal is this? James says that it's untamable. And so the greatest of the, the beasts mankind has, has tamed, except for, except for the tongue. And, how does, and what type of animal does James describe it as? Because he's literally, he's nearly, I would say, describing it as a snake, Look at the end of the verse there. He says it's a restless evil. And you know, a lot of the commentators describe that word restless as something that just at any minute could just lash out, right? You can't be too, care, you can't be too lackadaisically around uh, the tongue. He says it's a restless evil and it's full of deadly poison. That's what our tongues are. So I, I hope that we will um, we'll respect our tongues for what it is, not take our mouths and our words lightly. Uh, that's what that's what we need to be taking from this. And as I just went through this whole description of all these different animals that James mentions, it's an obvious reference to, to Genesis 1, where, where God gave man, us, man and woman, he gave us dominion over the world and over all these creatures. Um, he says that we were given dominion over them, and, and James says that we've maintained dominion over them. But it's so ironic that the, the one thing we haven't been able to, to maintain is the tongue. And this is how, this is how one commentator put it. Um, he said, we've been, we've been able to maintain this do- dominion over all the wild beasts uh, of, the, of the earth, but because of the fall, man has lost dominion over himself. We've lost dominion over ourselves. Yes, sir? Sorry. I'm wondering, if, uh, did you find any other writers besides the Gospels and James... Uh, dealing with that illustration of poisonous snakes in the tongue? Um, no, because I don't, I don't know that he's even specifically calling it a snake. Okay. You know, he, but yeah, he's, it's almost the same type of description. Because yeah. um, I was thinking of Romans 3, mm-hmm. the poison of asp is under the lips. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, um, maybe I did read, yeah, the, that's right. Gravity. I yep. wondered if there's like an idiom that you came across or something in the you know, Hebrew world or the Greco-Roman world that was maybe a common... 
Well, it's funny that you ask because as I read through like Mu especially, yeah. everything he's quoting all of these other Greco-Roman writings, oh, you know, okay. and Hellenistic writings. But for that verse, I don't remember one. But yeah, everywhere else, I mean, all of these images, all of these examples, the, the ship, you know, all of these things he's saying, these are, are well, the fire he included. I mean, he's a million references, of, but I don't remember one. But I think you have a, a, a good one, right? It was Romans 3 you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fire, of the asp is underneath well, the tongue. Speaking of the depravity, but it's, mm-hmm. like it's showing something very strong there, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that, that would be a very good, that is, that is a good one. That is a good one. So, so why, I'm, why I'm mentioning these commentators here, I'll, I'll mention another point that, that Curtis Vaughn made in his commentary on James, because I think at this, at this point, if it might be a good place to mention this, is that it may seem at this point that this is almost like a hopeless endeavor Right, the, the way we, I mean, James has just gone on and will continue to go on. We're, we're not even done. It's almost like, what, I mean, it seems hopeless to even attempt to tame our tongue. Right, could, could God even expect us with, with God's own description of our tongue to, um, to tame it? Um, so, so what for you, I mean, just, I just want to open this up. This is not even in the text here, but I just want to remind us of this truth is that so what, with this description, with this nature, with this reality that our tongue is this sinful, is this prone to sin? What do we need to control it? We need the spirit. We need the spirit. We need the fruits of the spirit. Mm-hmm. We need the spirit. Yeah. Which would all be things that can, we can do that, through our tongues. Mm-hmm. That's right. We need grace, yes, sir. And, and I understand that, but even, but even with that, you, you still got Romans where, hey, I don't do what I want to do, and I do what mm-hmm. I, I do what I don't want to do, and, and you've got this constant battle back and forth. So, mm-hmm. you know, I just like some feedback on that because because I hear what you're saying and yeah. I agree, you know? but we've got this war going on in in us. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would just I would, I would just go back to what we said already. To the put off and the put on of Christianity, mm-hmm. you have to hold that paradoxical situation and the contrasting that we have to walk in. That we are not of this world, but we are in this world, and so we walk with a heavenly mind. Mm-hmm. You know, that, I think that's the difficulty: is living in it and not losing hope. That, as, as he says there in Romans seven, to use the own, t- own text that you use, right. is, is who will deliver me from this body of death? We were talking about that yesterday. Mm-hmm. You know, is it not Christ? So we know who will do it. We know Christ will deliver us. But so what you're saying is, what's the extent of this deliverance right now? Are we actually going to be able to stop it? Well, I mean, like I was thinking when you asked it, it came to mind that we kind of already addressed that, right? He says you'll be a perfect man. But what is, you know, of course it doesn't mean sinless perfection. You know, of course we know. And and on that, I was looking at that because I I think you you made the point that, um, you you made the point from a positive standpoint, Mm -hmm. but it's, I think it's my nature. When I read it, I look at it from a negative standpoint. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, that James is <laughs> that James is um he's more he's saying uh, is he a perfect man? Is he he's able to bribe the whole body as well? I think he's being a lot more sar- sarcastic mm-hmm. and just he's he's saying you're not gonna be able to do this. It's, mm-hmm. it's not gonna be done. But right. you know maybe I'll be wrong. I have to look at it again. But right. that's as I just read it, I'm just going. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. he's, well. I think in the context he's saying it isn't inevitable because he starts off knowing that such will incur a stricter judgment for we all stumble in many ways. Mm-hmm. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Talking mm-hmm. about like... So it's going to happen. Absolutely perfect. But so is he saying it's going to Well, I would say just like, like the reference, right, from, from chapter 1, mm-hmm. when he says like we go through all these trials, mm-hmm. 
God's bringing you these trials so that you'll become perfect, so that you'll become complete. Right. In the same way, he's not meaning seamlessly per- per- perfect. Right? That's why we talk about that word. Like, I don't think he's meaning absolutely perfect. But, and I know yeah. that, but I'm yeah, just okay. saying, is, is it, I just think that he's, he's I, think, I, think, oh, I think James is looking at it from a, from a different perspective. You're trying to say in context, he's been saying how bad the tongue is. Yeah. He's saying you, it's, it's impossible to do it. So it's so bad, you won't be perfect. That's what it sounds yeah. like to me. Yeah, okay. So it is saying that um, in the flesh, it's just, there's no hope in the flesh. Basically, walking in the Spirit is the only way to achieve holiness, perfection, and mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's why I jumped in right here where the text doesn't even say anything, and just to remind us that we need grace. We need the Spirit. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, it gets pretty dim. I mean, he just, you know, that's, that's I thought the same thing. I've been sitting there for hours looking at how bad, I'm just like, man, we need grace. There's, there's no hope um, outside of that. Um, and so I, I think James also... Just to remind us why he's even going through this as well is the same thing he's been doing the entire book so far. He's having us to examine ourselves and, and to look for fruit, right? And be, I don't think he, I don't think just to go on what we've been talking about. I don't think he's saying unless you perfected your, your tongue that you're not really genuine faith, you know. So he would just be saying, judge by the fruits. What's coming out of your mouth? You know what I mean? If if your if your fruit coming out of your mouth is getting rotten or spoiled, you know, you need to prune it, you, you know, check yourself. Exactly. You know, I think, I think that's what he's been doing the whole book. And so here's just another example of a Christian virtue, um, that we can judge whether we are being sanctified, whether we have the spirit on the background. Was there any, um, did you see anything with the teachers and leaders in the church? Mm-hmm. Um, cause it seems like there's, this book has an element of strife to it amongst the people of God that he's writing to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when he's writing this, he's talking about the teachers. And if you look throughout the chapter, it seems as though he's trying to quell some of the storm that by the things that people are saying. And that's why I think he goes on to talk about the gentleness of wisdom mm-hmm. and looking at the context of let's, let's look from the wisdom that comes from above in the application of one, not, not many of you become teachers because it's a stricter judgment, and the things you say you'll be held accountable for in a stricter way. Mm-hmm. But not only that, but let's solve these problems. Where's the devouring come from? Where's the selfish ambition coming from? Where's all this coming from? So that there's even rumored amongst them, I think in chapter 4, that there is murder in their hearts or mm-hmm. possibly even a murder, according to Ralph Martin on Word Bib. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's. I think an element there of where he's trying to solve that problem as well yeah. uh, in addressing this as a, as a direct thing that maybe there's some bitterness and some lashing out going on mm-hmm. and maybe the, uh, where the wars come from among you uh, kind of mentality. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think all, all the commentators say that the way James speaks here is, is he's, it sounds like he's using almost hypotheticals, but he's speaking directly speaking, to something that was actually happening. Yeah, he's dealing with what was actually happening. So these teachers were... You know, these people were trying to rise up in the churches for sure, and were trying to devour one another. And yeah, so all that was definitely taking place. I was just, uh, yeah, bringing it home to us a little more. Um, but yeah, that's that, that's definitely true. Um, that this, these things were probably actually happening, and so James is trying to warn them. Um, so let's go. Let's get back to the text um, really quickly here. So I, I put this. I say we've all probably heard the expression. Do you kiss your mother with that mouth? Yeah. You've heard that before, right? We all know what that means. So as we look at verse 9 here, I think James is going to take the, the reality or the meaning of that phrase that we use to the, to the maximum extent. He's going to show the vast spectrum of what can come out of our mouths. 
with verse 9 and 10. So he says, he says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. And so, why does he say that it's so wrong? Why is it so wrong for us to curse other men? Because they're made in the image of God. That's right. That's why it's wrong to murder. Same thing. Right? So he's not even speaking of murdering here. He's speaking of what we would consider a lesser sin. Just cursing someone. Just cursing someone. So even though men are fallen, even though men are sinful, they still bear the image of God. And so that's why that's why we should, we should honor men. We should honor men because they're related to God in this way. God made them in men, women, in his image. And so what James is saying is a direct contradiction to bless God, which is what we do here at church, right? We come together, we bless God with our mouths. And then maybe as we drive home, we curse men, right? That's a, that's a direct contradiction to do something like that because, because all men are made in the image of God, saved, unsaved, right? Men, women, saved, unsaved, born, unborn. All, man has been made in the image of God. And so to curse someone who bears the image is to curse him who gave, whose image they were made in. So we're, we're, we're kind of indirectly cursing God, right? So we just need to, is another way that we ought to guard our mouths. You know, we can leave here blessing God, head home, pass up whatever it is, the Mormons. Very easy to curse. Those, those people are made in the image of God. You know, we need to be careful the way that we dishonor them as well. We need to, we need to be wise. Um, and so I think, yeah, James obviously says here, these things ought not to be this way. That's what he says. If that's a struggle, though, I mean, honestly, I think that's taken care of in Romans, where vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Mm-hmm. That's the mindset we should have. It's not for us to curse these people to try to, it's not our, our, to damn them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So this is the last two verses, real quick. 11 and 12, he says this. One, some more, one more illustration or two on the nature, uh, based on nature. He says, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. And so, so again here, I think the call is for self-examination. The call is for self-examination. What type of fountain are you? And how do you know what type of fountain you are? He, he's helping you out here. Because just because you say that you're a freshwater fountain... Just because you say that you're a Christian, that doesn't make you one. The determining factor is what kind of water comes from you. Right? So as hard as it is, self-examination is hard. It's very hard to be real with yourself, you know. Um, but in, and that's what I think the church is for as well. We can, we can if, we're, if, we're, if we really care about people's eternal destinies, if we care about their sanctification, we need to be willing to help people out say, hey, man, that... That water, that didn't taste too fresh. You know, we can, we can do that for each other. And I think we should be able to. That's what James is doing here. James is warning these people because he loves them, he cares for them. It's a loving thing to help, help a brother out in that way. So another, the other example is what type of tree are you? Do you say you're a fig tree but yet produce olives? 
right? He again, James is nearly quoting his brother here. In Luke in Luke six, James says, "For a tree is known by its fruit." He said, "For for out of the mouth speaks that which fills the heart." Right, that's the truth. Um, you know, I think I think we. I'm glad that you guys commented on things y'all did because my whole point was to 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 kind of feel the weight of how serious James is speaking of our tongue. I mean, I don't think he could speak any um, any harsher or, or bringing this reality home in any other ways than to say, like, our mouths are, are stoked up by the fires of hell. You know, that, that it's basically impossible to tame this thing that's in our mouths. It just causes so much destruction. Um, so, as, as, as Josh said, we need the Spirit. We need grace. That's where, that's where our minds should go at this point. It's almost like we, we just have heard the law. We've heard how sinful we are, and so we need grace. And, in, and it's a call for us to check ourselves, you know, Christian and unchristian. You know, we, we, both, we both have to check ourselves. And so to end on a, on a, on a more up, upward note, I wanted to say this. I said, we do have, we do have the day to look forward to where saved and unsaved alike will use their tongues rightly. And, and, and Paul speaks of this in Philippians chapter 2, where every single tongue will give the glorious Lord Jesus Christ his proper due. Amen. On that day, this will happen. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow Amen. of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And it says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The impossibility will happen. Right? That's all that I have, guys. Um, let's go to let's go to service. Thank you. God bless.